Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. There's a little more than about a month to go before Election Day, and political campaigns are gaining momentum around the state. Last night, Connecticut Public hosted a debate with major party candidates running in the 2nd Congressional District. Incumbent Joe Courtney, a Democrat, is seeking re-election. His challenger is Republican State Representative Mike France. Coming up where we live, we get analysis from the debate. Do you live in the 2nd Congressional District? What issues matter to you in the lead up to Election Day? You can join us as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Share a comment on Facebook or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Now, Connecticut Public's Catherine Shen moderated the debate at Eastern Connecticut State University last night. For more on the candidates and the issues they discussed, joining us now on Zoom is Lisa Hagan. She's a federal policy reporter for Connecticut Public and the Connecticut Mirror based in Washington, D.C. She was up to Connecticut for last night's debate. Lisa, welcome to our show. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's talk about these uh, two major party candidates in the 2nd Congressional District. As I mentioned, incumbent Joe Courtney, I believe it's seeking his ninth consecutive term, Lisa. And then there's his challenger, State Representative Mike Franz. So for listeners unfamiliar with these two gentlemen, what do you want to tell them? Yeah, so Joe Courtney, the congressman, has been around for for quite some time now. He came in in 2006 when Democrats had a really good election year. And so he has been very big in armed services, specifically submarines and in higher education. So that's been his major issues. And then being challenged by Republican Mike France, who has been a state rep. I think this is his fourth term. And he also has a military. Well, he has a military background. He's a retired naval officer and also worked kind of in the shipbuilding business. So uh, it, it, it's interesting. They have very similar interests in vying for this district. I thought it was a pretty civil debate, but there were a couple of places that it was obvious the candidates had differing opinions. One was on how to reduce health care costs. I wanted to play a little bit from last night's debate. Uh, this is uh, Representative, I'm sorry, Congressman Joe Courtney talking about, you know, his ideas of how Congress can work to reduce health care costs. Next year, the cost of insulin for Medicare will be capped at $35 a month. That's about a third of what a a, a diabetic pays today who is on Medicare. Uh, And then over the next two years, they're going to be implementing an overall cap of -of out-of-pocket costs. It'll be $2,000 in total uh, by 2025. There he's talking about a prescription drug bill that could use government leverage to bring down the costs of medications. He also wants to expand the cap on out-of-pocket costs to wider populations. This is how his opponent, Mike Franz, responded to that question. I think the negotiation theme, I think the negotiation theme of the federal government being able to negotiate prices directly for those beneficiaries is positive. The challenge is those that are not on a government insurance program do not derive that benefit. The more that we are able to have a free market solution to this, and the better that the individual patient can negotiate directly with their doctor for their care, 
the better the opportunity are. So Lisa, I wanted you to talk about that exchange and how each of the candidates answered that question. And when we think about the demographics of the second district, you know, is this an issue that is front and center uh, for their constituents or potential constituents? Yeah, so Congressman Courtney was referencing the bill that Democrats passed very recently, which was the Inflation Reduction Act. And so it had multiple components. It also deals with uh, climate change and tax policy, but it is very much a, a health policy bill. And so he's referencing the ability to try to lower prescription costs. Uh, they, you know, talking about insulin as well, but just the ability that Medicare can negotiate those prices and try to lower costs for, for seniors. And so he's talking about that in terms of a major health policy overhaul the biggest one we've seen since the Affordable Care Act and, and something that uh, Republicans also kind of use as a wedge issue. They they look at it on the flip side and they think it adds to inflation and, and specifically for Mike France. And I heard him talk about this in, in a few issues. He doesn't want the federal government really involved in a lot of this stuff. And so that applied to health care and then higher education as well. And so uh, in terms of this being an issue that's important for the second district. It's something that we're hearing Democrats talk about all over the country because there's there's seniors that will that will benefit from this and see that over the course of the next few years. Uh, certainly, inflation and where people are, how they're feeling in the economy, has taken uh, center stage in, in so many campaigns. And I'm wondering if you can briefly uh, tell us how each of the candidates answered related to cost of living and you know the real uh, the realities that people are facing today, Lisa. Yeah, so Republicans typically go more on the offense about talking about inflation, and we saw Mike France do that last night. And so uh, Republicans typically talk about this in just ballooning spending at the federal level. And so Democrats passed that Inflation Reduction Act, but they also passed several other bills that amounted to trillions of dollars. And so Republicans look at that and say that that has contributed uh, to inflation. Obviously, it's a very complicated, nuanced topic. So there's many different components that have added to inflation. And we've seen that around the country and around the world. And so Democrats contend this and kind of counter it by saying that by reducing costs, whether it you know eventually be in energy prices and gas prices and also for health costs, that that'll, that'll lower overall spending for consumers and then eventually with lower inflation. Another interesting moment in the debate last night, of course, is how the candidates differ on reproductive rights. I felt like this was the only time that Joe Courtney directly challenged his opponent on an issue, Lisa. Let's take a listen. You know, Mike, when, when you were on uh, Channel 3 with Eric Parker, he asked you whether you would vote for the 15-week um, Lindsey Graham, Mississippi law as a member of Congress, and, and the answer he gave was yes. Well, when you think about what that means is that you may want all this to go back to the states, but you know that wasn't the question you were asked. You were asked about a federal law. It would totally capsize the, the Connecticut statute. And then Mike France countered, saying he supports abortion in some circumstances, saying he does not support a complete ban on abortion. Rape and the life of the mother should be the exception. He also said that this is a state's issue, not a federal issue. How would you characterize that exchange between the two candidates, Lisa? You're right. This is the first time I kind of seen them go head to head a little bit, and it didn't get overly contentious, but definitely an issue where where they differ. And, and, and Joe Courtney was pointing out that interview. And so you know, it was interesting because I think Mike France was able to answer that question first. And he said that he didn't support a complete total ban. Uh, obviously, Joe Courtney pointing out that interview where he did say that. So it, it's unclear to me exactly where he stands on that 
not sure if he, you know, walking it back, misheard the question, but at least at tonight's or last night's debate, we heard Mike Franz say that he wouldn't support this uh, proposal that's floating around Congress right now for Republicans that would ban abortion at the federal level for 15 weeks. And then Joe Courtney uh, mentioning the bill that Democrats passed that have stalled and blocked in the Senate <clears throat> about codifying Roe versus Wade and, and a constitutional right to abortion rights into law. You're hearing Lisa Hagan here where we live. She's a federal policy reporter for Connecticut Public and the Connecticut Mirror. Uh, she was up in Connecticut last night for Connecticut Public's debate with uh, the candidates running in the 2nd Congressional District. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, education loans uh, came up and also the, you know, the federal government's involvement, particularly the Ed Department and the Biden administration on writing off uh, some debt. Did you feel like there was some agreement there in terms of how each candidate feels the you know, policymakers and others should be addressing these uh, high costs of higher education, Lisa? Yeah, a little bit of agreement on that part. I mean, that's the thing when people talk about the Biden, you know, forgiving student loans is that there's still the other component of making college more affordable. Obviously, this is only going to discharge loans for a certain segment, and then people will still have to take out loans to go to college in the future. And so they both kind of address the affordability question. And I didn't really hear them actually specifically touching on what President Biden did in terms of loan forgiveness. And so they seemed like they were looking a little bit more forward thinking and looking at ways of of addressing this issue for, for future students. Immigration reform also came up. We heard incumbent Joe Courtney talking about how this is particularly something he hears a lot about from his constituents, particularly in Norwich. Can you can you tell us more about how the candidates addressed that issue? Yeah, well, we're seeing this issue kind of pop up and, and be used, you know, heading into a campaign a lot, especially from Republicans. We've seen migrants being flown into into places like the Northeast. And so um you know, Mike France referenced migrants coming into Connecticut. I wasn't really sure what that was in reference to. He said they were coming into his town uh, at night. So I, I'm not sure about that. That might be something that needs to be fact-checked after the fact. But uh, both talked about immigration being being a really important issue and something that, again, Republicans are trying to use like inflation as a wedge issue to Democrats. So uh, curious to see how that ends up playing out in the November elections. Mm-hmm. The issue of submarines did come up uh, later on in the debate. You know, this is a a huge issue for uh, the second district when we think about electric boat and uh, the economy. And you know, how did they differentiate on um, that particular issue? As you mentioned, Mike France has a you know as a, a retired naval officer, and of course Joe Courtney, who has been the longtime congressman who has been working on uh, in Congress about um, having you know so many submarines allocated to really help uh, the local and Connecticut economy, Lisa? Yeah, I think that is also more of an area of common ground. This is an extremely important industry to the district. It's something that Joe Courtney has built his congressional legacy on pretty much from the moment he got into Congress more than a decade ago. And so I think it's important for to both of them that there is just a continued interest and investment in manufacturing and, and developing submarines. And so uh, didn't really hear too much contention on that point. I think that's something that, you know, Joe Courtney will continue as the chairman of a sea power subcommittee and that Mike France, if he was elected, would also, you know, come strongly into Congress about that. Mm-hmm. 
I heard in the uh, after-debate analysis that you and your colleague, Mark Pazniokas, uh, uh, when you were referring uh, to you know how some of the, there were a lot of details shared, and it, at times it was pretty wonky. I thought that was pretty refreshing to have two candidates who seem really well-read on the issues, Lisa. Agreed. I, you know, as someone who's based in Washington, uh, you know, you hear a lot of political attacks all the time. It's and so it, it was refreshing to hear something that was just very issue focused. You didn't hear them squabbling and, you know, some some moments trying to link them to the national, uh, you know, figureheads of, of both their parties. But it, it was it was nice to hear them really dive into the issues and, and even bring up some terms that uh, only a lot of us in uh, Congress are really focusing on. I started the segment, Lisa, talking about how this is being seen as as one of the more competitive races in the House. Of course, the 5th District is one that a lot of people are watching and the national parties are funneling a lot of money into. But what's your take on, you know, how competitive this race is and, you know, how close it may be on Election Day? It's still one of the more competitive races in Connecticut, but the 5th District is really the most competitive one. It's the one that we're seeing millions of dollars in both parties just pouring money into this race. And so we're not seeing that in the second district. So while, it, again, something to be watched, Joe Courtney very narrowly run this race when he first came to Congress in 2006. One, he's won by big margins every every other time. But uh, until I'm starting to see a lot of or see any outside spending in this race, uh, I don't see this as as the top ticket item for for this election. Again, you've been hearing Lisa Hagan, who's federal policy reporter for Connecticut Public and the Connecticut Mirror. A pleasure to talk with you, Lisa. We hope you come back. Thanks so much. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk more about uh, how uh, medical providers are looking to address disparities in death rates from cancer. This is following the death of a beloved boys basketball coach in Bloomfield, Kevin Moses. More after a short break. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. Thanks for listening. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. The Bloomfield community has been mourning the loss of the high school boys basketball coach, Kevin Moses. He passed away due to colon cancer last month. Moses, also known as Coach Mo, was the first black head coach to lead Bloomfield High School's basketball team to a state championship last year. And his high-profile death has renewed attention on the disparities seen in death rates from cancer. 
Previously, the death of Hollywood star Chadwick Boseman from colon cancer led to discussions on disproportionately high mortality rates among black cancer patients. For more, joining us now on Zoom is Dr. Eric Weiner, who's director of the Yale Cancer Center. Dr. Weiner, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Uh, when we think about the work that you and your colleagues are doing at Yale Cancer Center, and I want to be curious if you could talk about the disparities that you see in mortality rates and why do they continue to persist? Well, this is a, a situation where the data are really very, very clear. And we know across the U.S. and in Connecticut as well um, that there are just huge disparities based on race, based on um, whether one has health insurance coverage, on education, on poverty, on and on. Oh, so when we think about even uh, during uh, COVID and how these disparities were laid bare, you know, are you seeing you know any improvements in terms of people seeking out care and providers acknowledging um, you know the fact that maybe some people have been delayed in getting care and you know ways to improve the outcomes, Dr. Weiner? Yeah, so I I think I think it's um, it's fair to say that this is an incredibly complicated problem. Mm-hmm. Um, the best news I can tell you is that there is a bright line being being shown on this at the moment. Um, both the National Cancer Institute um, and many foundations and cancer centers across the country um, are focused on this issue because it, it it's really a huge issue in terms of cancer death rates. Um, and just to give you an example, um, I'm a breast cancer doctor by training. So I tend to fall back and talk about breast cancer, Um, but it applies to every single other cancer as well. If you're a black woman living in our nation's capital, Washington, DC, you are twice as likely to die of breast cancer as if compared to being a white woman. And that's in spite of the fact that incidence rates are actually lower in black women than in white women. And this is because of delayed care or not access to quality care, Dr. Weiner? Oh, I could I could go on and on about why it might be. Um, it may be delays in screening. Um, it's, um, it's poorer access to care. It's coming to providers who don't look like you and don't feel like somebody you can talk to and you feel put off and you, you don't stay for care. Um, it's um, at times not having the resources to be able to afford the taxi to to go to the clinic to to get the treatment. So it's a very very complicated problem, and and there isn't one easy fix. And of course, this gets at the fundamental social issues in our society. But at at the same time, I can tell you, we are totally committed, both at Yale, but I'm I'm really speaking much more broadly about cancer centers across the country, um, committed to really try to address this problem and diminish these disparities. And if I can just say one more thing. Yes, please. The better our cancer treatment gets, and so the more effective we are in curing cancer, um, the more we are able to help people live longer, the more tragic these disparities become. Now, I understand Yale Cancer Center is looking to hire more patient navigators, the aim to narrow inequities to access cancer care. Can you tell us more, Dr. Weiner? Well, um, this is just one of many strategies we have. Um, Excuse me. 
we have um, we have uh, care that is available across the state in 14 different locations. And that care will be highly subspecialized care, the same care that's available at the main campus in, in New Haven. But building it isn't enough. And one, one part is helping people come in. So that's where navigation comes in. And if you, if you will, navigation is a bit like making sure that there's somebody who's a knowledgeable friend who's there with you all the time and who helps make sure that, um, that the appointments get made and that you have the support you need. Um, but there's more to it than that as well. We have to, in many cases, retrain physicians to be more culturally sensitive. We have to provide concrete resources to patients. So money for those taxis and for childcare and um, other such services. And we really have to take a very, very broad-based view of this. And in my mind, it's worth doing because um, at the moment, we're just losing lives unnecessarily. Mm. Well, can you talk about some of the, the community partnerships that Yale Cancer Center has? Specifically, I'm thinking about you know these grassroots grassroots groups, say in communities of color. Uh, there is actually, a, their name escapes me, there's a uh, an organization based in New Haven of women uh, who have survived uh, breast cancer. These are black women, and you know they become advocates, they become um, um, support for others going through um, this diagnosis. And I'm wondering, are there partnerships happening that are helping get people in the doors to get this care, Dr. Weiner? Yeah, well, again, it's it's both in the doors and it's in the doors and, and maybe staying in the doors, um, meaning coming back. Okay. Um, because coming once doesn't help you the way uh, one might like. Um, those partnerships are incredibly important. And um, as much as um, someone who isn't used to the healthcare system um, might not trust some of us who are very much part of the very fabric of the healthcare system, having somebody from the community is incredibly important. And those partnerships um, are something that we continue to look for and, and we have partnerships. Um, but it's going to be about developing more and more. And it's not just about partnerships. It's actually, well, it is about partnerships, but it's, it's reaching out to people in the community and understanding from them about what they want from us, not telling them what we need from them. And what, what have you gleaned from them when you do reach out and they tell you what they need, Dr. Weiner? Well, you know, I don't, I personally don't pretend to be an expert in the research in this area. So, so with that caveat, um, what, what we learn um, is that um, people really feel put off by um, the whole healthcare system. And that's not really surprising. Even I, as a doctor, well-educated, what have you, when I deal with the healthcare system, I'm for myself. I'm horrified, and I can't imagine what it's like to to do it if you've never done it before, and it feels very foreign to you. So we 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 in one way or another have to make this much more accessible to people. We have to think about ways of of providing treatments at home and close to home, um, and um, 
the one intervention that has been repeatedly shown to be effective is what you mentioned, which is navigation. Navigation used to be something that we thought of as nurse navigation. What we've learned over the years is that community workers and lay navigators can be incredibly helpful. You're hearing Dr. Eric Weiner here where we live, director of the Yale Cancer Center. You can join us if you have a question or comment, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. You know, earlier you talked about um, medical providers getting uh, culturally responsive or culturally res- uh, sensitive um, training uh, you know, to reach uh, particularly marginalized people when we think about the communities you serve. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. How's that going? Um, you know, it's it's going. Um, one of the challenges we face is that, of course, our provider community looks very different than the patient community. In a survey done a, a couple of years ago, 2.7% of all oncologists in the United States were Black and 4.8%, I believe, were Latinx. That's very different from what we see in our in our society. And so... We can't overnight change that, um, but what we can do is try to help people who look different from some of our patients learn a little bit more about what makes people more and less comfortable. I think we're getting better, um, but I think it's just, I, I really do believe it's, it's a slow process and one has to just keep working at it and working really hard at it. Mm, I, um, I, I do want to make a comment about um, about. Uh, colon cancer in young people, um, and yes. in particular in, in, in young Black individuals. So there is an epidemic of colorectal cancer in young individuals in the United States. We don't understand why. The screening recommendations were recently changed such that colonoscopy is now recommended at age 45 instead of 50. But at centers around the country, we, we see people coming in in their 30s and early 40s with advanced colon cancer. And that is very much true in, in the black community as well as the white community. And it's it's something that we're we're really trying to understand for that that particular malignancy. I'm glad you bring that up. It's something uh, you know that I have noticed as well among people that I know, uh, Dr. Weiner. And so when we think about the messaging that your center can put out for early detection in the communities you serve, uh, what can you tell us? Well, it, early detection is 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 very important. It's particularly important for diseases like colon cancer, where in fact, um, screening tools like colonoscopy not only detect cancers, um, but actually prevent precancerous lesions from becoming cancerous. Um, we don't have a way um, in the United States at this point in time of screening people starting at even earlier ages, um, unless we can identify particularly high-risk individuals. And in truth, I mean, if we were talking about 30-year-olds, I think it would be pretty hard to argue, given what is still a very low incidence rate, to do screening there. But beyond screening, I think the, the other issue is that people just need to be aware that if they don't feel well, if they have symptoms, that um, rather than put off seeing a doctor. They, they, they really need to come in and be seen. 
Again, you've been hearing Dr. Eric Weiner, director of Yale Cancer Center. Uh, what we, you just discussed in the last couple of minutes is something that I hope we can uh, talk more about, uh, this surge in colorectal cancer among young people for a future show. We do appreciate your time on the show, Dr. Weiner, and your honesty. Uh, thank you for uh, coming on. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. Coming up, have you heard of POTS? It's a syndrome of the autonomic nervous system. It's not rare. More than 70 million people around the globe live with it and other malfunctions of the autonomic nervous system. Coming up, we're going to hear more from a nonprofit working to raise awareness and also fund medical research. We're going to talk about that after a short break. First, it's Connecticut Public's fall fundraising campaign. You can support shows like Where We Live and all the news you get on Connecticut Public with a pledge. Here's my colleague, senior producer, Tess Terrible. Hi, Tess. Hi, Lucy. How are you today? I'm doing well. Uh, How are we doing on this first day of the fall membership drive? You know what, Lucy? We are doing fantastic. Um, It is the first day of our fall membership drive, and we already have so many people to thank this hour. We want to thank Gary and Susan from New Haven for their generous donation, Uh, John from Hampton, Connecticut, and Lauren from Woodbury. Um, We're still a little ways from our goal for today, but uh, every little bit counts, and um, we can't do it without these member supports. And the number, uh, Tessa, is one eight eight. You you can actually tell me the number for people to call in. <laughs> I'm actually going to give them the Where We Live call number. That is the wrong number. <laughs> that is not the number. So if you want to call in today and donate and support your local member station, the number is one eight hundred five eight four two seven eight eight. That's one eight hundred five eight four two seven eight eight. Or you can go online to ctpublic.org. Um, as always, there's lots of gifts you can choose from this year. One of our most popular gifts this time of year is the L.L. Bean 24-inch traditional balsam wreath. Just in time, it'll be delivered in the holidays, I think, uh, in November. Although I have already started listening to holiday music. I'm not going to lie, Lucy. I'm, <laughs> I'm ready for the holiday season after this Some, very hot summer. Something about when sweater season begins, the, the tunes, the holiday tunes come on. They uh, do. Tess. They do. <laughs> as soon as I break open the, the sweater closet then um, Oh Holy Night is playing on Spotify for me. <laughs> again, our number, again, I have it in front of me now, Tess, 1-800-584-2788. You know, it's great to hear from listeners who take time to call in to support the station that you've come to rely on, whether you found us recently or you have been a longtime listener and maybe a, a frequent supporter. Thank you so much for your generosity. Uh, we also know that a lot of people listen uh, to this show and to Connecticut Public by um, streaming it, uh, whether it's on our website or through one of their devices at home. And so it's so easy to go to our website, ctpublic.org, and click on the donate link. Again, you can see all of the great pledge items that we offer as a, a thank you to listeners who've become supporters. As Tess mentioned, the L.L. Bean 24-inch traditional balsam wreath, that's when you know at $13 a month when you make that pledge and that wreath is coming to you, the holidays really have begun, Tess. So <laughs> uh, no critiques from me that you've been playing uh, the holiday tunes. Um, you know, I find that, that it's a 
it's a real pleasure to uh, host this show and to have these conversations with listeners all around our state, policymakers, people in our communities doing things uh, that we want to elevate and highlight on our air. And I also uh, take seriously the fact that it's listener support that makes uh, the conversations we have on where we live possible, as well as as well as all of the news and information you get each and every day from Connecticut Public. Uh, we have dedicated reporters, producers, hosts, a lot of people behind the scenes. When we think about even the debate that was hosted last night, uh, tests at Eastern Connecticut State University's, the visuals team, the digital team, uh, and so many others, and, and the operations team to make this kind of event happen to really inform uh, the public, especially those in the second congressional district. If you appreciate the work that Connecticut Public is doing with your dollars of support, uh, and you, maybe you haven't pledged yet this year, now's the time. 1-800-584-2788 or ctpublic.org. That's right. That number, is, again, is 1-800-584-2788. You can always go online to ctpublic.org to check out our many thank you gifts. And that's true, Lucy. I mean, our team, uh, just on where we live, it consists of many producers working on this show um, around the clock. It This show does not happen in a bubble. It does not happen without the support we have from our members. So give us a call this morning. Again, that number is 1-800-584-2788, or you can go online to ctpublic.org. If you are not quite ready to think about the holidays, if you're still quite committed to fall, there's a few other different gifts you can choose from for a gift of just $25 a month. You can get the CT Public NPR t-shirt and a stainless steel water bottle. This is, You'll get both of these items. Um, I have this water bottle in front of me. I could always use a new water bottle, Lucy, because I am leaving mine everywhere in friends cars at the gym at my church i just lose one every other month so i could always use a new one again the number 1-800-584-2078 or ctpublic.org and thanks you're listening to where we live on connecticut public i'm lucy nopathanchel now have you heard of pots Uh, the mayo clinic says for patients with pots even walking the dog can be a chore my next guest is the founder of Dysautonomia International. The nonprofit says POTS is not rare. More than 70 million people around the globe live with it and other malfunctions of the autonomic nervous system. Lauren Stiles is also a POTS patient and research assistant professor of neurology at Stony Brook University School of Medicine. Lauren, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so I will admit I not I don't know very much about POTS until we decided to do this segment. And for listeners who may be hearing uh, this acronym for the first time, can you tell us what it stands for? And when we think about uh, the impact on patients, if you could describe uh, some of the symptoms. Sure. POTS stands for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. It's kind of a mouthful. So that's why we just call it POTS. <laughs> and uh it's, it's a condition in which um, the autonomic nervous system is not regulating the blood vessels and other organs properly. And so these patients have a really hard time with proper blood flow, especially when they stand up. They're not getting enough blood flow to their heart and their brain. And this can cause symptoms like lightheadedness, uh, a racing heartbeat when you stand up, fatigue, brain fog or, or cognitive impairment, the more scientific term for it. 
um, real difficulties with activity and exercise. I mean, in severe cases, patients are bedridden. So um, POTS is not something a lot of us have heard of before we're diagnosed with it, but it's actually a fairly common autonomic nervous system disorder. And uh, bef before COVID, the estimates were about 3 million, 3 million Americans had this, which would make it more common than multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's. Um, but since COVID, we're having a, a lot more people coming down with this, which is not surprising because about half of POTS patients develop it after an infection. And COVID is just one of many different uh, infections that can trigger POTS in some people. Wow, that's that's really troubling to hear. Uh, you said that a lot of people don't know about it until they're diagnosed. Is that something that happened to you, Lauren? I understand you were working as an attorney in New York when you got the diagnosis. Yeah, that was 12 years ago. Um, and awareness has come a long way since then, but we still have a lot more to go. Uh, yeah, I had I had never heard of POTS or, or even the autonomic nervous system or, or dysautonomia, which is the umbrella term we use for all of the different autonomic disorders. Um, until I was diagnosed myself and um, kind of threw myself into research because I had such a hard time finding a doctor that knew about this. And I, I kind of felt, and I think a lot of patients feel this way, um, if you can't find a doctor to help you, you kind of have to help yourself. You have to dig into the research. You have to read what's available from credible sources. And um, that is changing now. We are seeing more doctors being aware of it, but it's still not... Um, and it, it's still not good that there's very long diagnostic delays, lots of misdiagnosis. And a lot of patients, once they are diagnosed, um, they have a really hard time finding a doctor who knows the ins and outs of how to treat this. Hmm. That's a real burden on someone who is not well and trying to figure out what's going on and, and not being able to find a, a provider that's responsive uh, to the you know what they're experiencing, uh, Lauren. And so do we know when we, when we think about even people in our state who are living with POTS, what can you tell us? Well, um, probably one of the best things to do is to join Dysautonomia International support groups. We have support groups in all 50 states and we have uh, um, international groups. We have uh, our website. So we list uh, doctors who are helpful for these conditions on our website and then asking local patients in the regional uh, state support groups is very helpful. A lot of Connecticut families uh, end up traveling to Boston for care because there really aren't many specialists in Connecticut who do this. Um, but we're, you know, we're working as an organization to offer physician education courses um, taught by the leading experts in the field to try to increase the number of doctors who are um, skilled in diagnosing and treating POTS and related forms of dysautonomia. Now, uh, I understand that there was a development related to POTS, and I'm going to give another <laughs> another term that people aren't familiar with or an acronym, ICD-10 code for POTS. Why is this important, Lauren? Yeah, the ICD stands for International Classification of Diseases, and it's put together by the World Health Organization, which is part of the United Nations. And the ICD is the coding for all the different diagnoses and conditions and diseases that, that the medical field has identified in the world. And uh, conceptually, uh, we try to have the same codes for the same disease used in all the different countries. Uh, so in the US, um, we, we're current, doctors currently use ICD-10. There's 10, this is the 10th edition that's come out. 
And uh, we got, POTS did not have a, a unique ICD code. It, it basically didn't have a code. It, it was kind of lumped in with some other diseases and no one was actually using that code. And this is important because researchers use ICD codes to do electronic medical records research, you know, anonymized, and they look at very large data sets from uh, Medicare or Medicaid payments or uh, like Blue Cross, you know, private insurers like Blue Cross Blue Shield that have millions of subscribers. And they look at those ICD codes in the data sets to understand like how many people have a disease and how expensive is this disease? And does this disease come with a higher rate of hospitalization, you know, et cetera. And so if you don't have an ICD code, it's very hard to study your disease. So we finally, uh, to Sodonome International, we applied for a unique POTS ICD code and it went into it, we got it approved and it went into effect October 1st of this year. So just last week. And we're, we're very excited about this. You know, we, we want people to know uh, if you have POTS, tell your doctors, please. Uh, the new code is G90.A, which is kind of, you know, kind of a, a just a, ran, a random number <laughs> for most people. But doctors know what ICD codes are. And uh, we want to get people to start using that code if, if they have been diagnosed with POTS. And we'll be sure to share that on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. You're hearing Lauren Stiles, who has POTS and is founder of the Dysautonomia International, also a research assistant professor of neurology at Stony Brook University School of Medicine. If you or someone you know has POTS and you wanted to share a little bit about you know your story of how you got your diagnosis, you can join us as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Are there um, some new clinical trials on POTS underway that you'd like to talk about, Lauren? Yeah. So Dysautonomy International has actually been funding more POTS research studies than the federal government, which is kind of disappointing since they have billions of dollars for medical research and we're just a relatively small nonprofit funding, you know, raising money privately. Um, but one of the trials we funded was uh, an immunotherapy clinical trial. So there's a lot of research pointing at POTS potentially being an autoimmune disease or an autoinflammatory condition. So it's not written in stone yet where we say definitively, like everything that's diagnosed as POTS is an autoimmune problem, but there's a very high rate of autoimmunity in people with POTS. So we're doing an uh, intravenous immunoglobulin clinical trial. And this is looking to see if we um, uh, eliminate some of the inflammation and the antibodies in these patients, do their POTS symptoms improve? And you know, preliminary findings suggest yes, but this is the first really formal clinical trial looking at that. Uh, so we're, we're excited to see the results when that comes out. And there's actually been uh, a few pharma companies who have reached out since COVID, now that so many more people are, are developing POTS, um, and they, one of them is also interested in an immune-focused therapy, and uh, others are looking at different biomarkers and trying to regulate the autonomic nervous system in different ways. So, you know, it's it's very frustrating illness to live with. Um, a lot of people are really debilitated by this, and they're young, you know, healthy, previously healthy, young athletic people who are just sort of taken out in their prime and reduced to, you know, basically being having a hard time washing the dishes or taking a shower, you know? Um, so we, we really need uh, investment in research 
and to push, you know, for new clinical trials on new treatments to get as many of these people um, back to living their lives as possible. It's interesting you mentioned that some pharma companies are interested. And when you think about, you know, the wide reach of POTS for people who may be learning about it for the first time uh, to be able to develop um, some uh, treatments down the road, are you uh, accepting any more participants in these clinical trials uh, for POTS, Lauren? Uh, yeah, they're all in sort of various different, there's lots of different studies happening, not only clinical trials, but also studies looking for different biomarkers. We're, we're kind of going down two tracks at once. One we need to find all the different biological mechanisms that explain what causes POTS and why people have it. And then at the same time, we're also funding, you know, treatment oriented uh, studies, trying to find us the most effective treatments we can with the knowledge we have right now. And so people can go to clinicaltrials.gov to find um, not just for POTS, but really for any disease that you might have that you want to learn about what's going on in the, in the clinical trial research. Um, so you can go to clinicaltrials.gov and look up by disease or by, you know, diagnostic term, uh, what trials are happening. And you can also visit uh, curepots.org, which is Dysautonomy International's um, POTS-focused website that talks about the different studies we're funding. Lauren, you said that you were first diagnosed 12 years ago. So how are you doing today? Um, I'm doing good. I, I still have POTS. I still have chronic illness, but I sort of in a, in a strange sense, I kind of lucked out that I had a diagnosable autoimmune disease, which no one, you know, you're never really lucky to have a second diagnosis. But in that, in my case, um, because I had Sjogren's syndrome, which is a very common cause of autonomic neuropathy, um, I was able to get an immunotherapy drug. And this dramatically improved my POTS symptoms and, and let me um, kind of return to some sort of normal functioning. Um, but most people with POTS do not have that um, opportunity. And that's why the research is so important to, to see if these treatments can help other people who have POTS who don't have like lupus or Sjogren's, you know. Um, in our last couple of minutes, uh, Lauren, uh, when for people who are listening and are maybe you know struggling with some similar symptoms, you know what advice do you have for them in terms of, of finding a, a provider that will take them seriously that there is something wrong? Yeah, I think going into it knowing that a lot of doctors don't really know about this, so uh, trying to you know, it's very easy to get frustrated when doctors don't understand what you're dealing with or, or, or a little bit dismissive or a lot dismissive sometimes. Um, but don't give up. Um, talk to fellow patients in the chronic illness space. There's a lot of, you know, people on social media. There's a lot of organizations like Dysautonomy International um, who can direct you to clinicians who know how to help. And also, I would say, you know, if you're really, really suffering and sick with this right now. There are treatments that can be helpful for many, many patients. Um, and it's just the matter of trying to find uh, the right doctor who has that knowledge base to help you get there. Um, and also keeping keeping your hope going, knowing that there's a ton of research happening. So even if you've tried everything uh, and you're still feeling really, really sick, um, that there's, there's research happening to try to bring new treatments into the space. You've been hearing Lauren Stiles here where we live, founder of Dysautonomia International, also a research assistant professor of neurology at Stony Brook University School of Medicine. Lauren, a, a pleasure to hear from you, and thank you for helping raise awareness about uh, POTS. Great. Thanks for helping us do that.
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Sujatha Srinivasan. Special thanks to, to Katie Pellico and our technical director, Kat Pastor. Now, coming up tomorrow, the road for Rob Hotelling to secure the independent party nomination for governor receives some scrutiny, leading to an unsuccessful court challenge by another candidate to keep Hotelling off the ballot. Uh, tomorrow, where we live, we talk to Hotelling in studio about how he's differentiating himself from the two major party candidates. What questions you have for him? We hope you join us. Now, uh, before uh, you um, get on with your morning, we'd love to remind you that it is the first day of Connecticut Public's fall membership campaign. I'm here with my colleague, senior producer Tess Terrible, with the phone number to call for listeners to support the programs here. Tess, what is it? It is 1-800-584-2788, or listeners can always go online at any time to ctpublic.org. That's right. And when we think about the number of people who've already called in this morning, thank you so much for your generosity. Oftentimes, Tess, these are uh, listeners who have become uh, regular donors, supporters of the station. We thank you so much uh, when you hear our, our our fun drive and you decide to contribute because you think about you know all of the, uh, the reasons uh, why you listen, including uh, conversations you may hear on our local talk shows, as well as the news and information that you get not only from Connecticut Public, but from National Public Radio. We can't do this work without your support. Our number again is 1-800-584-2788, or you can go to ctpublic.org and click on the support link. There you'll be able to see all the great thank you items. And and in the fall tests, we we roll out the perennial L.L. Bean 24-inch traditional balsam wreath, which is a favorite of many listeners who become supporters. And that's just for a gift of $13 a month. That's right. That's just a gift of $13 a month. Shipping begins in late November, so just in time for the holidays. Um, the These wreaths are adorned with real pine cones, holly berries, and a weather-resistant bow. So it's perfect for your front door, or in my case, my apartment door, to greet your neighbors and greet your visitors. Um, and every little bit counts. Uh, these are difficult times that we're living in, and any donation helps us here at Connecticut Public. Um, one of my favorite ways you can donate this year, one of the, my favorite gifts, is donating meals through CT Public's partnership with Connecticut Food Share for a gift of ten dollars a month 25 meals are donated to Connecticut residents needs as of 2022 one in six Connecticut residents are food insecure due to inflation and expiring federal benefits and so this is just a really great opportunity not only to support your local public radio station but also to donate and help families and residents in need here in Connecticut um, we have a lot of other gifts you can choose from if that doesn't uh, suit you, and um, please call us now. The number is 1-800-584-2788. You can always go online to ctpublic.org if you want to check out our other thank you gifts, and we appreciate your support so much, as Lucy said. Again, the number is 1-800-584-2788. Feel great knowing that you support your public radio station, Connecticut Public, with a pledge. 1-800-584-2788, and thanks.